question number 46, question number 46 of the Westminster Confession, uh, the larger catechism, which as some of you will be aware is the subordinate standard of the Free Church of Scotland after, of course, the supreme standard, which is the Word of God, the Bible itself. But question 46 asks this question, what was the estate of Christ's humiliation? In other words, what do we mean when we speak about the humiliation of Jesus Christ? Answer, the estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon himself the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death, until his resurrection. Question 49 asks one of several follow-up questions. How did Christ humble himself in his death? Christ humbled himself in his death in that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate and tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, felt and borne the weight of God's wrath. He laid down his life, an offering for sin, enduring the painful, the shameful, and the cursed death of the cross. I mention all of that this morning because if there is one passage in all of the scriptures which precisely testify to what is being described there in the Westminster Confession, that humiliation of Christ and particularly the humiliation of the events surrounding his death for the sins of his people, it is surely the first 18 verses of Psalm 22. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said of this psalm, he said, I know not whether any psalm throughout the whole book contains matter more weighty or from which the hearts of the godly can so truly perceive those sighs and groans inexpressible by man which their Lord and their head, Jesus Christ, uttered when conflicting for us in the midst of death and in the midst of the pains and the terrors of hell. In other words, whilst it is the case that we will never truly be able to plumb the depths of all that Jesus Christ endured and suffered for our sins, it is probably the case that this psalm does more to bring that suffering home to us than any other portion of Scripture. And, of course, the reason for that is that what we really have here, at least in the first half of the psalm, which is 
as I mentioned, going to be our, our focus this morning. What we have here are not just the words of David some thousand years or so before Christ, but they are ultimately prophetic words which are designed to point us all the way forward to the true and the final Davidic king. They're designed to convey for us in first-person terms the very experience of Jesus Christ himself as he endured those final moments in the lead-up to his death. And so as we read these words of Psalm 22, it is in the ultimate sense of their meaning, the incarnate and the suffering Jesus who is speaking to us. Here is a window, if you like, right in to the mind and the emotions and the feelings of our Lord as he faced the worst of his humiliation for the sins of his people. And so this morning I want us to just spend some time focusing on our minds on three aspects of Christ's suffering, three things that our Savior was willing to endure for the sake of his elect. And then I'm going to mention a few things by way of application. First of all, we're reminded here of the rejection, the rejection and the verbal abuse that he suffered at the hands of evil men. In verses 6 to 8, it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He's saying, such is the contempt with which people view my life. I'm not even given the most basic honor of human dignity, of being treated as a man. Instead, I am, I am viewed by the people as being little more than a worm, as something worthless, something insignificant, something worthy of nothing more than being trampled underfoot. Later in verse 13, he says, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring lion. In other words, there was a viciousness. There was a ferocity to what was taking place. They were like wild animals encircling their prey and ready to go in for the kill. I am mocked, he says, and despised by the people. You remember how Isaiah 53 uses very similar language where it says there from verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It's a truth. It's a truth which, again, the, the confession summarizes by simply saying he was scorned and rejected by the world and he was tormented by his persecutors. And, of course, we know all of this to be true 
from the record of history, don't we? The record of history that comes later on in our Bibles, in the gospel accounts. How he was not only betrayed by Judas Iscariot, how he was not only then deserted and abandoned by his own disciples, schemed against by the chief priests and the teachers of the law as they brought the false charge of blasphemy against him, but then how he was mocked and how he was ridiculed by the crowds as they shook their heads at him and as as they shouted at him, prophesy, save yourself. You who said you would rebuild the temple in three days, come down then. And so here is the first aspect of our Lord's humiliation. The one who only ever spoke words of truth. The one who never uttered an evil word was himself vilified, accused, mocked, and ridiculed because of the unbelief and the depravity of fallen men. The second thing the psalm brings home to us is then the physical sufferings of Christ at the hands of violent men. In verses 14 to 18, he says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. The Gospels tell us very clearly that after the arrest of Jesus, he was flogged or scourged. He had a crown of thorns placed, pressed perhaps we might say, onto his head. He was struck or punched several times. And finally, as it says in verse 16, pierced through his hands and his feet as he was nailed to a wooden cross on which he would eventually die. What is especially solemn about these words is that what we have here is not just a reminder of the physicality of Christ's suffering, but also a description of its impact, the toll that it took upon his human person. And not just the fact then of his physical abuse, but his experience of it as well as a man. First in verse 14, all my bones are out of joint, meaning his bone had literally become dislocated. First of all, because of the violence he had suffered, but also presumably due to the stretching of the limbs that took place during a crucifixion. Isaiah 53 again says his appearance was marred, that it was beyond human semblance. 
his form beyond that of the children of man. And he says, my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaw. A potsherd was or is basically a a fragment from a broken piece of pottery. And so the the meaning, the imagery here is that rather than being like, for example, a, a green tree that was that was growing and that was healthy and, and full of moisture or sap. Instead, the body of our Lord had become like a brittle piece of pottery or earthenware. He was so dehydrated and fragile and frail, it was as if he could just crumble to pieces. His tongue sticking to his jaws such was the lack of moisture in his body. You remember in John chapter 19, verse 29, he simply cries out, I thirst. I thirst. Think about it. The perfect and the pure and the sinless son of the living God battered and bruised beyond recognition, weakened to such an extent that all he can say is, I thirst, bones out of joint, pierced in his hands and feet, hanging on a cross left for dead. And yet, friends, what is just so difficult for us, I think, to really process in our minds is that even after we've considered these things, we still haven't actually got anywhere near the worst of Christ's suffering for our sake. Because the final thing which is brought home to us here in this psalm, indeed I would say the most important thing which is brought home to us in this psalm is not just the verbal abuse suffered at the hands of evil men, nor the physical torture experienced at the hands of violent men, but the forsakenness that he experienced at the hands of God himself. He says in verses 1 and 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far off? from saving me from the words of my groaning. Now, friends, it's no exaggeration to say that these words of Psalm 22, verse 1, words which, as you know, were spoken out loud by the Lord himself as he hung there on the cross. These words of Jesus Christ probably take us deeper into the heart of the gospel than any other verse in Scripture. Because here is the moment of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Here is the moment when this one who knew no sin experienced the dereliction and the abandonment of God the Father on account of our sin.
Here is the moment when all of the wickedness and the vileness of our own rebellion against our Creator from throughout the entire course of our lives, every sin ever committed, every sin that we will commit in the future, was effectively attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he then experienced for that sin, not his own sin, for he had none, but your sin and my sin. He experiences the forsakenness of holy justice that should have been experienced by us throughout all eternity. It's that moment that we read about in the Gospels, do you remember where it says that there was darkness over all the land for three hours? Right in the middle of the day, the, the brightest part of the day, it was like a, a symbolic representation of the judgment and the displeasure of God that was raining down upon His Son in that very moment. And for our very sins. And of course this is why. Despite all the. Despite all the suffering. That Jesus had already. Endured up to this point. This is the moment. This is the moment when he finally. He cries. In desperation. In anguish to the father. You think about everything he'd already experienced at the hands of sinful men, everything that we've just been thinking about, and yet not once do we read in the gospel accounts did he actually complain or cry out for deliverance from those things. He was, again, as Isaiah tells us, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But the one thing that causes him to open his mouth and to express the extent of his torment is this moment of abandonment by the Father. Notice the repetition here. My God, my God, he says, as if to convey the intensity, the desperation of his anguish. In this moment. John Calvin said this. He said. As our representative. He appeared before the judgment seat of God. As a sinner. And before his eyes. Was the curse of God. It was this. Which constrained him to cry out for deliverance from death. If says Calvin. In the first part of his conflict, his sweat was like great drops of blood and he needed an angel to strengthen him. We should not be surprised that in his final suffering on the cross, he cried out in deepest sorrow. And yet, friends, what is the true wonder of all of this. The true wonder of this verse of Holy Scripture is that Jesus Christ cried out these words, My God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I would never have to utter those words for all eternity. You think about lawbreakers such as ourselves. We are all sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. We should have had to spend eternity crying out these words. Please, Lord, do not forsake me. Please, Lord, do not abandon me to my sin and my rebellion and this hell. But because Jesus Christ suffered this holy condemnation in our place as our substitute for our sins, we can now live with the peace and the assurance that we will never have to experience that same forsakenness at the hands of a holy and just God. It is truly mind-blowing, is it not? There are really no words to convey the extent of what was happening here on the cross, but it's enough for us to believe what the Scriptures teach, that for our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, meaning that He was treated as our sins deserve. Why? So that in Him, by faith in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds, we are healed. Now, before we close this morning, what difference should all of this make in the course of our lives as Christian men and women? Understand what the Bible says about the fact, the fact, the historical reality of Christ and his sufferings for our sakes. But how, how should this, how should this impact us? What, what are we being taught here? How should this change us today, this morning? As God applies this, this reality of, of history, this pivotal moment of history where Christ dies in our place for our sins. What are we being reminded here in this solemn text? First of all, it's here we're being reminded that what the Bible says about the rebellion of the human heart and man's natural hostility towards God is the truth. We read in John chapter 1, this is the judgment or this is the verdict. The light, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You think about it, never in the history of this world was the extent of man's wickedness more fully exemplified than in his treatment of the Lord Jesus Christ. The light of the world had come, but men preferred darkness and so tortured him. 
and put him to death. If ever you doubted the fall, the historical reality of Genesis chapter 3, if ever you doubted the doctrine of total depravity, our being born into a sinful state where we are dead in sin, if ever you doubted the reality of these things, this should be enough to convince us otherwise. It should be enough to to drive us out of ourselves, to humble us as we realize the capacity for evil which which is in the human heart. The second thing this should do is it should cause us to realize afresh our utter dependence on Jesus Christ for salvation and the utter folly of ever thinking that we could somehow be saved by our own good works. I mean, just think about this. If sin is so real, if sin is so disgracefully offensive in the sight of a holy God that it took not only the condescension of his only begotten son, but then the abandonment and the crushing of his son in order to pay its penalty, then what would make us ever think that we could somehow contribute in some way to our being made right with God? Do you see that the notion that we could somehow earn our way into heaven by good works, by some assumed morality. It's effectively to treat the sufferings of Jesus Christ, the death of Christ, with absolute contempt. It's like saying, we're not sure that you did enough, Lord. Maybe what you suffered wasn't quite sufficient to atone for my sins, to deal with my personal sin. But what do the Scriptures teach even in the second half of this great psalm? And we're not going to get to this in great detail today, but you notice there in verse 24, verse 24, what does it say? For he, that is God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, In other words, God the Father was fully satisfied that this one who had been afflicted had paid the full price of our rebellion and our sin through his afflictions, by his sufferings. This is why Jesus was able to then say those words of declaration before he took his dying breath. It is finished. Meaning, the price has been paid in full. Your sins are atoned for. Why? How could he say such a thing with such authority in his weakened state? Because the Father was satisfied that justice had been served. It's why the Apostle Paul will later on say to the Ephesians, 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Dear friends, do you see that your justification, your being acquitted and made right with this God, is all of God, and all of it accomplished in the dying death of his beloved son. Finally, because that is the truth, because that is the case, the third thing that this should do is it should cause us to marvel. It should cause us to rejoice in the love with which God has loved us in the gospel. You see, the question that we need to ask at the end of all of this as we consider the sufferings of Jesus Christ is why? Why would one who, in the final analysis, does not need any one of us, why would one who, in the final analysis, does not owe us a single thing other than death and judgment, why would one such as this actually choose to step down from glory And suffer the agonies which are described in this psalm. Why would he stoop so low and endure so much? Friends, the simple and yet profound answer to that question is that this was the full expression and the extent of his eternal covenant saving love towards his people. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, one will scarcely die for a righteous person Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ endured everything that we've been thinking about this morning. And Christ died for us. Despised and rejected by men. Abandoned and forsaken by God. Why? Because of his eternal, unbreakable covenant of grace and his holy love towards sinners. Sinners like you and sinners like me. Friends, I don't know very many of you. I've had such a a blessed time meeting some of the men last night and I don't know where you are this morning.
with God. But God knows. God knows where you stand. And if you have never come to lay hold of this treasure that we've been thinking about this morning, if you've never come and knelt at the foot of the cross and said to Lord, help me, Lord, save me, Lord, a sinner, have mercy on my life, Lord, change my life, then I would just impress upon you this morning the need to come to him. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a great friend of sinners. Humble yourself before him. In due time, he will lift you up. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. For if you do so, He will have mercy on your soul. And he will be the greatest friend you've ever known. Let us bow our heads in prayer together. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are once again humbled as our minds are caused to remember the weight of Christ's sufferings for our sake. We confess, O Lord, that if you were to mark our transgressions, there is not one of us who could stand before you. And yet you have been pleased to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. We thank you that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Jesus Christ alone, and that all of this is to the glory of God alone. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we ask our Father that you would continue to minister in the lives of all who are gathered this day. We pray that you would seal these truths to our hearts. We pray that you would grant saving faith and true conversion to those who are as yet strangers to your grace. We pray, O Lord, that these precious words, these solemn truths, would continue to sanctify our souls, that they would cause us to be humble before you and yet also glad and rejoicing in the benevolence which has been shown towards us in the gospel of our dear Savior and our Lord. We pray, O Lord, that you would prepare us now for our coming together at the table of our Savior. And we ask all of this in Jesus' wonderful, mighty, and precious name. Amen.